Well, brethren, we are grateful for the growth and the work overall. We are having a lower income. We're only about 1% increased, but some works we hear are having decreased, or at least we're increased, but keep praying for the work. But the increase for the uh, responses to the telecast and the new don't the new uh, uh, go-tos, they call them, are coming along very well, and we're very grateful for what Christ is doing in that way. In fact, Mr. Wayne Pyle's original uh, sort of pre-weekend forecast from one of the 30 programs showed that Mr. Ames' uh, wonderful program on Armageddon is probably going to bring in over 5,000 responses. So we're apparently up over 5,000 again as of this weekend. So we're grateful for that, and we are having an impact. Again, I want to remind you of the coming fast. Let's take that seriously. Many brethren actually thank me. I've had letters from all over the world literally thanking me for calling a fast. And a number of brethren actually suggested it, of course, over a period of, of months because we didn't have one for about two years. Uh, we did have one for two or three years in a row, and there was no big reason before. But I really realized there was a reason to have one because so many people were getting sick and uh, various things in and, and, and the field. Many people were dying and or in hospitals or having troubles, and we're not having the amount of healings that we ought to have. So if we fast... Uh, and get close to God and the way it fell, it's coming just before the Passover. Well, that can really have a very important double purpose. Well, brethren, what's the real difference with living church of God between living church of God and these other church groups all over in the world and even other church of God groups? What is the basic difference between us? There are actually two. Number one is we have a passion to carry out the first commission more than any other group. That is our passion to get the gospel of the coming government of God and the true name of Jesus Christ all over this earth. And we're doing that more powerfully, man for man and dollar for dollar, than anyone else on earth. Secondly, we have a passion to restore apostolic Christianity or as we're beginning to call it, original Christianity. And we're going to change the booklet. We have a very powerful booklet calling Restoring Apostolic Christianity. But because uh, we didn't realize that connotation, some people think that apostolic meaning the Catholic succession of uh, bishops or something, and then others think it means like the apostolic holiness churches, which are Pentecostal, you know, hoop and holler churches and so on. We don't mean that either. We're talking about original Christianity, the Christian, real Christianity of the Bible, the Christianity of Jesus Christ and the original apostles. Most of us understand about the need to do the work, and we need to remind ourselves of that from time to time. No question about that. That's extremely important. But we do need to get our minds on original Christianity. And with this fast approaching, and, of course, the Passover approaching, I'd like to speak on that. What happened to original Christianity? Most of you know that, but we have many new members here and around the world, and we need to think about it, all of us, from time to time, to understand and not get sucked back into the kind of thing we came out of. Thousands of our brethren in worldwide did get sucked right back into that. They just followed those around them and did not stand up for the truth of God. And we know that. We've been very deeply hurt by that, those of us who had those people as friends or relatives and loved them. 
In 3 John, turn with me if you would to 3 John now. This is the third epistle of John just back before the book of Revelation. 3 John, and I'm going to begin here in verse 9. This old apostle John, the last one of the original apostles to remain alive, he said, I wrote to the church. So the church still existed. But Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. He would not even receive the last remaining ones of the original apostles. Therefore, if I come, he didn't know he would get to, but if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren. In other words, this man was not receiving the true brethren. He was trying to keep the true people out of the church because they would obviously disagree with him and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. He was beginning to excommunicate or disfellowship people who were hanging on to the truth. The true people of God gradually got put out of what was the main existing church at that time. And this scripture certainly makes that plain. Then you go to Jude in the very next book right after Third John here. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. He was one of Jesus' brothers. James, Jude were brothers of Christ. And tradition tells us in history this was undoubtedly that Jude who became an apostle. Two of Jesus' physical brothers, half-brothers, became apostles. James, the Lord's brother, and Jude. To those who are called uh, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly. Now, of course, contend means to fight, in a sense, to fight for the faith. Contend earnestly with all your heart for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The New King James, I think, translates it just a little better. The way they, they say, once for all delivered. It's not to be changed around. The true faith, the right approach to God, was once for all delivered, of course, to the saints, the original apostles and people of God. For certain men, they've had some falling away even by this time, certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace. Remember, grace is unmerited pardon. Grace doesn't mean you're saved, but it gives you a pardon for your past sins, but not your future sins if you keep on sinning. Who turn the grace of our God into license. And that's what they were doing. Like the modern Protestants today, they think, well, we're all forgiven, so we don't really have to keep the commandments. They use the word grace as an excuse to say they don't have to keep God's Ten Commandments. And that is wrong, and frankly, that is a damnable lie. That is a horrible thing. That is one of the most malicious lies perpetrated in the history of this earth. And I'm not kidding. It's deceived hundreds of millions of people how they put this little twist on that, on the word grace, and give themselves then the excuse to break God's Ten Commandments. So grace has turned into license, license to disobey God and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Well, of course, they deny him by not obeying him. And many scriptures show that. We, we don't really serve God and believe in Christ if we deny him. As Jesus said in Luke 6, verse 46, Why call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? He's not your Lord unless you obey him. Lord means boss, master. But that's how you deny him in your actions. So we need to understand this is what happened. Now, in the booklet, Restoring Apostolic Christianity, there are a lot of wonderful quotes, and I can't begin to read them all. But I want to read one or two that write out. I'm copying from myself here. The Christianity of the New Testament, this is the attack upon Christendom by Soren Kierkegaard, a very famous philosopher. The Christianity of the New Testament, he writes, simply does not exist. What has to be done is to throw light upon a criminal offense against Christianity prolonged through centuries, perpetrated by millions, whereby they have cunningly, under the guise of perfecting Christianity, sought little by little to cheat God out of Christianity and have succeeded in making Christianity exactly the opposite of what it is in the New Testament. In the quotation, and that is true. I encourage all of you to read this booklet. There's more good stuff in here than I even realized myself. I had help from Mr. Bowman. I've helped from others to get wonderful quotes in putting this booklet together. Very powerful quotes. And they really tell the history of what happened. And it's very helpful if all of you w would reread this, uh, this booklet. We're going to try to use these up. And then once we do, we'll change the title to Restoring Original Christianity. It doesn't bring a big response. That's one reason we don't advertise it as much. I think if we call it Original Christianity and, and advertise it the right way, it will grab people more. Then Professor Rufus Jones, who was a famous theologian at the end of the last century or the 18th, 1800s, I should say. Now we're in 2000. He writes, If by any chance Christ himself had been taken by his later followers as the model and pattern of the new way, wow, if by any chance, of course they ought to think Christ is the model and pattern of the new way. Who would know more about Christianity than Christ? But he said, if by chance they'd done that, uh, and a serious attempt had been made to set up his life and teaching as the standard and norm for the church, Christianity would have been something vastly different from what it became. Then heresy would have been as it is not now, deviation from his way, his teaching, his spirit, his kingdom. You see, some of these uh, TV stations don't want us on because we don't teach the Trinity. Well, they're the ones that have deviated from Christianity because they teach if we, because we don't believe in, in uh, worshiping on Sunday or Christmas or Easter, things like that. They think, we, they think we have deviated and all of history and all of the encyclopedias say otherwise. They show that the original Christians did not do that. We are the ones who stuck with original Christianity and these others have turned to paganism. They're deceived, of course. All the friends and relatives I grew up with were into that. I remember as a boy, some of us after uh, school would go by, coming back from Joplin High School, walking home occasionally, sometimes would uh, go out toward the uh, Jun Stadium to practice football. That was a different direction. But other parts of the year, we'd walk by this building, and there was kind of a half basement, and, and it, they didn't have a big church there. It was a Seventh-day Adventist church, and... and uh, and we'd sometimes they'd make a remark, oh, they worship on Saturday, ha, ha, ha. And then we'd walk on. 
Well, we didn't hate the Adventists. We were just stupid kids. We didn't know anything. We just went, ha, ha, ha. It just seemed odd because it was different, you see. We didn't understand. And that's the way it is in the world. So we don't want to get mad at them. By the way, I thought that uh, the sermonette was very, very fine and that's so important to learn to love and forgive others, really forgive others, and examine ourselves about that before the Passover approaches. But we cannot afford to... Uh, let's say, not forgive, but as such, but just look down on and make fun of these people that are not converted. We have to remember, there but for the grace of God go I. That's the way I was up to age 19 and a half. And that's the way some of you up were up to 40 or 50 or 60 or whatever it was before you were converted. We understand that. That's up to God. You didn't understand. But anyway, what we may properly call Galilean Christianity, you see, the Christianity of Jesus and the apostles, beginning in Galilee, had a short life, though there have been notable attempts to revive it and make it live again, which we're trying to do. And here and there, a spiritual or spiritual prophets have insisted that anything other than this simple Galilean religion is heresy. But the main line of historic development has taken a different course and has marked the emphasis very differently, end of quotation. Well, of course it has. They evolved, or their mainline Christianity evolved into the dark ages of Roman Catholicism, where in darkened cathedrals and places they were bowing down before idols and flickering candles and all this kind of thing, and chanting in a, in a foreign language various chants, some of which they probably didn't even understand themselves, and just going on with the same type of approach as the ancient Babylonian people did. That's exactly what they picked up. They took up, picked up some of the same doctrines, the same ideas. And when Martin Luther rebelled against Rome, he had, who was Martin Luther? He was a Roman Catholic priest. That's not some new doctrine. Most of you may know that, but many of you may not. He was a Roman Catholic priest. He went down to Rome... Uh, on a sort of a pilgrimage, and he was very disturbed because he found the Catholic priest down there and giving the Mass, or whatever they, they call it, they were sometimes half drunk because they would drink the wine and let the people just have the bread, and they were also laughing and joking as they passed the bread and wine around and because they were drinking too much, and, and uh, he saw that, and then they were having a race as to who could do it the fast, fa the fastest. You know, and then he began to realize, as others do, that they said that the uh, bread is absolutely Christ's body. Christ's body is literally turned into that little piece of bread. Well, it dawned on some of the early Protestant reformers as they would they be in these big cathedrals that so sometimes the bread got spilled accidentally and it got down in the cracks in the, between the stones and rats would eat it. Here are rats eating the literal body of Jesus Christ. That made them think, what's going on? You know, and you think about some of these doctrines, they're just insane. And yet men have been so deceived that they've gotten into that kind of thing. They don't know the truth. They just don't know, and God has blinded them. So Martin Luther, then he rebelled against some of the Catholic ideas, but he carried on with most of the main Catholic doctrines. He carried on with the pagan Sunday, the day of the sun. He carried on with pagan Christmas and pagan Easter, the pagan doctrine of the immortality of the soul, 
and uh, all these things that came right out of ancient Egypt and ancient Babylon. He just carried it right on, and that's what most of us grew up in, either as Catholics or perhaps more of us as Protestants. But the so-called church took a very different turn from what was given in the Bible and from the religion of Christ and his apostles. So we do want to understand that. Now, brethren, let's turn to Acts chapter 20 at this point. Uh, Acts uh, chapter 20 and read another warning about this thing that was to happen. I'm going to turn back to Acts chapter 20 and in verse 25 Paul writes, actually speaking here to the Ephesian elders he was visiting them, the elders at Ephesus knowing he might not see them again. He said and indeed now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, that was his message, the coming government of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Sometimes we have used that expression. We're getting that from the Apostle Paul. That's very important, brethren. We don't want to give you just part of the counsel of God, there are different Church of God groups around the world that have parts of the truth. The ancient, uh, not ancient, but the older Sardis Church. I know Mr. Armstrong told uh, uh, Ken Herman, whom all, many of you older brethren remember, he was registrar of Ambassador College for years, and Ken Herman and Owen Smith, another college student, and I went up to uh, work in the woods in Oregon just as students back in the summer of 1950. And Mr. Armstrong told us, he said, well, we just had an old Chevrolet that was about to fall apart, and he, he thought it was too far for us to go to Eugene, so he, he knew where we were going to go. He said, why don't you just attend the Scrabble Hill Church of God, which was right near Jefferson, Oregon. He said, that's the church I raised up, and there was a Sardis church now. It wasn't our church, but he said, they won't hurt you, and so on. He said, you might worry them, but, but, but they won't bother you. He knew we knew enough already, even though I'd only been in college one year, <laughs> and Ken Herman had been in college two years. Well, we walked in. I had my $39 suit on. I bought from Sears Roebuck or somewhere. We were all very poor, but we were three young men walked in with suits and ties and the local minister, uh, kind of a fat guy and didn't know how to dress and he looked very embarrassed. He was afraid and he thought, Armstrong's men have come here to take over. <laughs> but we were just kids. We weren't trying to take over anything. So after we'd been there two or three Sabbaths, everyone relaxed and they were nice folks. But all they talked about was, well, uh, George, how's the weather? and the crops, and okay, and they go on like that, and that's all they knew to talk about. They didn't understand anything about prophecy, the purpose of human existence. They just knew uh, they kept Saturday instead of Sunday, and uh, they knew, as Mr. Armstrong said, they had the, the gospel, and uh, partly they, they understood the kingdom of God was to be on earth and not up in heaven, and they didn't keep Christmas and Easter, and they didn't believe in the immortality of the soul or the Trinity. But they didn't understand so many other things, and they were not zealous. They didn't have a real uh, desire or capacity or whatever to grow in grace and in knowledge and understand all the other things of the Bible, the real meaning of the Sabbath. They didn't believe in the holy days. They rejected that. Their leaders had, and uh, so on. 
and they rejected the truth about Israel, so they didn't understand prophecy. They had no understanding of prophecy. They just knew Christ was going to come back someday, somehow. <clears throat> of course, Billy Graham believes that, too. I read Billy Graham, heard him say it three times in person, and then I heard have it in writing in his uh, My Answer, where Billy Graham said in writing, and I may put that in an article sometime. I don't want to persecute Billy Graham because he's an older man about to die and <clears throat> very sincere, I think. But he said, Christ may come tonight, or on the other hand, he may not come for a thousand years from now. Well, that's quite a stretch. <laughs> tonight or a thousand years. It shows he doesn't really understand that we're in the latter days and what the latter days mean or anything. It just has just a vague idea that some kind of Christ may come back someday, somehow. And that's about all of them know. So anyway, we do understand more of those things because we do try to keep God's law more carefully. And God has given, He gives understanding to those that obey Him. And we know that. But He said, He says, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And brethren, we do try to do that in this church. And I think you know that the whole way of life, everything, part of the whole counsel of God is the right understanding, not only of the coming kingdom of God, but of church government. How can we be kings and priests in the government of God if we don't even practice it now? You see what I mean? If we say, well, let's vote. and let, how, how, well, you know, Mr. Armstrong showed how the Sardis people would do that. I heard him explain that many times. Some ministers in these meetings, they'd get together, well, what will your people go along with? And what will your people go along with? And so they maneuver uh, in their voting and so on to get what they wanted and try to go along with the majority, kind of like the, uh, you know some of these politicians today to try to have a poll and follow the will of the majority, not what God says. That's one thing that I admired so much about Mr. Herbert Armstrong. And Mr. Armstrong made mistakes, and I don't worship him. I've made plain that I, I know he made many mistakes, but he always said, not all the time, but once in a while he would say, and he really meant it, and I saw him, in spite of everything else, he would try to teach us what God said. He said, what is the truth? We cannot go along with the majority. We've got to follow. He said, I have all, one thing I've always done, he said, I've always tried to be faithful to obey the Bible to do what God says. And that's true, to teach what God says. So anyway, we want to really understand that's so important. God looks on that. We've got to do what God says and to learn to let the Bible correct us and grow in that. Another thing he had was a tremendous amount of faith because he had to stand all alone and study the book the Bible and other books and commentaries all alone in the Portland Library and in his home and here and there over and over and over during the early years. Later on, Herman Hay and I came along and we were the ones he asked to stay behind and not go to the field, but to be the Bible teachers. He gave us the entire theology department and we took over the theology department and then Herman Hay added more than I did, all kinds of technical points about chronology and history and, and other things. But I did help Mr. Armstrong with certain things about especially the epistles of Paul because I was studying that deeply. And he said once in a while, he'd say, well, I'm glad you 
you mentioned that, Rod, and explained that. He said, you know, you fellows, I hope you realize, he said, I was like a one-armed paper hanger. He said, I had to start, I had to dig all this truth out and dig each truth, point of truth out all alone, no one to help me. And that's true, no one was there to help him. And, and then start the work and then preach sometimes in campaign six nights a week, plus on the Sabbath, do a radio program on Sunday, and, you know, all this other stuff he had to do. He had to write all the articles once he got the magazine going. No one else wrote one article. He was the only one and do everything like the one-armed paper hanger. <laughs> so he worked hard. And he said, you, you at least I've given you a head start. So we added little bits and pieces, but he gave us the basic foundation. And that foundation was very, very good. And we're very grateful for what God did through him. But in studying and studying and having to stand alone, he and Mrs. Armstrong kept the Feast of Tabernacles for several years completely alone. No one with them. You think about that, brethren. Would you be willing to do that all alone? Not one other human being to give you support. You have to believe there is a real personal God and that that God says what He means and means what He says and have faith in that God. And because of that, you read in Mr. Armstrong's autobiography about a number of really wonderful healings, divine healings they had in his life in his early ministry. And I can testify, as I've already told you, several I witnessed in the early days of Ambassador College. Just dramatic healings from God Almighty. But as the work grew and grew and we got more involved in the administrative aspect of the work, which he warned us about, he said it affected him and affected us all. And then, of course, as the whole society around us got more worldly, and if you need to go to sleep, you take a pill. If you need to wake up, you get another pill. If you have a headache, you take another pill. If you're wanting birth control, you take another pill. And if you want to have children, I guess you take more pills or whatever it is that these women take and sometimes have five or six kids at once. There's a pill for everything. You see what I mean? You get your mind on what man can do and you don't have faith anymore in the invisible God. And that's the point. We have lost that personal reliance on a personal God of power who says what he means in the Bible means what he says, and backs it up with divine power. That's one reason we don't get more miracles today, because that complete, total reliance on God is not there near as much as it used to be. So anyway, he says, I have not declared, shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, or bishops as it is translated, uh, to shepherd the church of God. Here is one of the 12 places in the New Testament where the true church is called the church of God. Not the church of Luther, not the church of England, not the Methodist church named after John Wesley's methodical way of doing things, not the Presbyterian church named after the government of the church by the presbyters or elders, and not the Seventh-day Adventist church putting the Seventh-day Doctrine and the Advent or Return of Christ using two doctrines to give the name of the church. You see what I mean? The church is called in the Bible, in the New Testament, the Church of God. That is the name. Now, there are Sunday-keeping churches of God, so they're not true churches. The Baptists have one doctrine straight. They know that you're to be immersed 
in water and real baptism. Others believe in that too. But of course, they don't know what to repent of before they're baptized. They don't understand the whole purpose of human existence. So they don't really even know what baptism means. They do understand the right mode, just that one thing they have straight. But anyway, the church of God oversee the, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He bought and paid for us by his blood. For I know that after my departure, Paul knew he was going to die. He sensed that. And later on in 2 Timothy, he spells it out that he was about to die right at that point when he wrote his second letter to Timothy. But he says, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. He's very powerful. Savage wolves, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, as we had experienced. And that's so sad to see that men right in our midst out in Pasadena rose up and they began to say, well, we're just making a little clarification here and a little change over here. Don't worry, no big deal. And gradually they shifted the church all the way from the church of God back into mainstream Protestantism. And that's what they have done and that's where they are. And that is a terrible shame. They're very clever. But not sparing the flock also from among yourselves will men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. They wanted to be in charge and a couple of these young men wanted so much they were embarrassed when they went to the Reagan Library and when they went to the, uh, you know, National, uh, back in, uh, in, in Washington, D.C., I forget what instances, but they were embarrassed by back at some of those things finding that the outsiders looked down on them, so they thought, we've got to go mainstream. And some of their friends told me, I, I was able to understand this ahead because I was in touch with these people since I taught most of these young men. They would tell me things. <laughs> they, they, they said, Mike and Joe want to go mainstream. That's what they're doing. And I began to see that. Yes, indeed, they made point by point they were going to mainstream Christianity, which I came out of and most of you came out of. So that's where they are. Perverse things. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. He literally was shaken by what he saw was going to happen. Paul was not lying. He was shaken and he prayed night and day with tears in his eyes. God, please help these people not go away. Help them not, you know, just let others cause them to water down the truth. And brethren, I, I hope I can do everything I can. Now, I may live another 10 or 15 years, and I hope I do. But if this is my last sermon, I hope to warn you so you will not let that happen. We have got to restore apostolic Christianity, original Christianity, and keep that way of life in this church. And if you don't do that, God help you. God help you because you're going to need a lot of help. These things are beginning to come together in world events more than ever before. And you must not water things down in the church or in your own life either. So I hope you can understand. So where is the example that we ought to follow? Well, of course, it's in the entire Bible. You know that. That's the big thing. The whole Bible tells us what to do. But I want to give you just a, a special key here is in First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2. And here the Apostle Paul says uh, in verse 13, 
He says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, this is First Thessalonians chapter 2, when you received the word of God, he says, you welcomed it uh, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. You understood it came from God, which also effectively works in you who believe. It has effect on your lives. For you, brethren, became imitators, and the New King James has it better, not just followers, but the original Greek here means imitators of the churches of God. Here again is the true name of the church in the plural, the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. So how do you hang on to the truth? You're to follow the churches of God in Judea, where the church began. So many people today think the mother church was Rome. The mother church was not Rome. The true mother church was never Rome at any time. It was always Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the mother church. And that's what we've got to understand and get back to that understanding where Christ and the apostles started. Back in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 4, notice here uh, what Jesus Christ himself told us. John chapter 4 and uh, let's uh, begin here in verse 21. This woman uh, had been talking about her Samaritan ideas, and Jesus said to her, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. And that's true. They worship paganism. They didn't know. In fact, they were worshiping demons, probably. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. The Jews had the truth. They didn't always keep it. And Jesus Christ was a Jew. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. You don't have to always do that in Jerusalem, He was indicating, because the true church was going to be run out of Jerusalem and scattered. He knew that. God is spirit. Verse 24. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Brethren, we've got to learn to do that. And of course, the word, the, the truth is here. Thy word is truth, Jesus said. John 17, 17. You've got to really worship God, not the way you think is the best. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death, Jesus Christ said through, through of course, uh, Solomon back in Proverbs. So we must not worship according to our human imagination, but according to the Bible, the word of truth. And in spirit, We've got to learn to keep the right intent of the Bible, the right intent of the commandments, and worship in spirit and in truth. And that's so important that we do that in every way, in the way we treat others, in the way we forgive others, in the way we try to do the work of God, in the way we carry out the government of God, and everything we do, try to do it the right way. So I hope all of us can really understand that. So we must keep all the Ten Commandments, all ten of them. We must keep the holy days that Christ tells us to keep and shows us, and shows us in Zechariah 14, the whole world is going to have to keep the, ten, the, the tabernacle uh, feast soon when Christ comes again. Every nation will have to go up and keep it. 
And so we must keep these things in our heart and really mean to keep them and keep everything God tells us to keep in the right way. And then we must truly learn and practice right church government and not try to water it down and say, well, it's no big deal. No, it is a big deal. That's exactly what we're being trained to administer in a very few years. How dare people in the church of God say that's not important where the whole message is the coming government of God and we are now being prepared to be kings and priests in that government. Of course, we've got to learn to do it the way God shows in the Bible and all kinds of other things. We've got to do it in genuinely giving our lives to God in every facet of our lives and not water it down. I remember going out to uh, Oregon uh, uh, the a second time. This was the summer of 1949. I'd been out there in 48. And uh, this was the second time I was headed out there with a couple of my friends, uh, uh, Hal and uh, Jack. Uh, anyway, they were going out with me and we got a ride through. And just before we left a few days, my grandmother, Meredith, said, you've got to stop off in Boise, Idaho, because your cousin Lyle is there, and his name was Lyle Cunningham, and he was the second man in charge of the whole Bureau of Reclamation for about five states, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, uh, Montana, whatever. They were the ones that built the big government dams, you know, like Grand Coulee Dam and all these others all over the West. So he was had a very important position there, but... My grandmother's sister, uh, way back early before I was born, had died in a horrible accident. She and her husband and my grandmother took over the boys. She raised her sister's two sons. One of them was Lyle. So they always tried to repay her. So she had got busy like grandmas do. <laughs> she, she tried to write Lyle and say, Roderick is coming through and help him and if you can or something. I guess she wanted us to do that. So we stopped by. And I didn't try to lobby to get a job. I thought I was headed back to the woods in Oregon. But he, he worked it out real quick where we were able to get jobs working here at Anderson Ranch Dam, a big government dam out in the mountains of northeastern Idaho. But anyway, while we were working, we'd spend every other week down in his house, and he had a finished basement where you uh, where the boys would stay. He'd had some boys himself, and... So we, he had this cots down there and out of his way. So we, it was nice for us. We were kids. So we slept down there on the cots on the, every other weekend we'd come down out of, out of the mountains to see the sights in Boise. But he got me one time to one side and he had a blackboard down there. He saw I was very intense on this religion thing and going down to Pasadena, you see it. And he said, well, he said, Roderick, he said, now, he, he drew this circle. Of course, he was a successful businessman, and I, yeah, I respected him. He, he was a man of, of means and uh, thoughtful, and I thought, you know, I would normally think that he knew what he was talking about. He drew this big circle, and he said, this, a lot of people get all unbalanced, and he said they get all involved too much in one thing or the other, and he, so he drew little pies here. Now, this, this part of the circle is your family, and this part of the circle is your business, and this part of the circle is your your pleasure and entertainment or whatever, and then a smaller part of the little pie over here, this is your religion. But he said, if you let your religion interfere with all the rest of it, you got all unbalanced, Rod, and you don't have a balanced life. <laughs> I look, okay. But I, I, was, I was being called, so even then I could sort of see through that. I didn't fully understand it. But he was trying to tell me 
put your religion over in this corner and don't let it interfere with everything else. Well, frankly, most successful people in the world, that's the way they think. You know that. They don't let their religion interfere too much. But you and I had better let it interfere a lot. <laughs> True religion is to permeate every single solitary aspect of your life from the moment you arise in the morning till the time you go to bed at night and even the thoughts you think during the night. That may sound weird, but if I ever have the tendency, which I very seldom do, to have dreams or to wake up and your mind wanders off on bad things, violence or sex or evil or selfishness, I pray God guide my mind and heart even while I'm sleeping so I don't do that. And uh, so, you know, you've got to think about it. Why do you brush your teeth in the morning? Well, I guess you say that's silly to bring that in. I'm just using tiny examples. It ought to affect everything. Well, you do it because to be in health, but why do you want to be in health? The ultimate reason should be to glorify God in your body. You may use Ipana and massage or the uses of some of these old toothpaste ads so you could be beautiful and get a boyfriend or girlfriend. That should be way down the line. Now, that's not unimportant, but the main reason is to glorify God in your body. <clears throat> now, when I was back in junior high, I began lifting weights, and I've told you that before, so I shouldn't worry you out with this, but I, I wanted to be big and strong. I really wanted that really badly. I thought my, my, I knew my mother would be mad if I put up these pinup girls with uh, bathing suits, you know, and stuff. So I didn't do that. I had uh, <clears throat> pictures of, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember all these names, but anyway, they didn't have, uh, I had uh, Steve Stanko and Tony Terlazzo and John Grimmick and some of the early bodybuilders. They were the ones that had their pictures up on the wall. You know, they were had their oil in their body and they had all their muscles showing and my sister Catherine may remember some. you remember those Catherine? Okay. <laughs> I had I didn't have girly pictures. I had those those men that all his their muscles just bulging there. And uh most men wanted something look at something other than that. But anyway I was looking at that and that was okay with mother. She was glad to have her son involved in lifting weights or having something that wasn't gonna make me be evil. <laughs> so that's what I had up there. But of course that didn't uh, work out. I never got big and strong. And finally my uncle Paul told me one time, he said, well, I said, I don't, I wish I could just start growing bigger and everything. He said, well, Roderick, you need to look at your father and your mother. And I said, oh no. <laughs> my father and my mother weren't very big. <laughs> and so I didn't turn out to be uh, very big and it was harder for me to develop things. But at any rate, why did I want to lift weights back then? Well, I wanted to be big and strong. I wanted to show off and I wanted to be a tough guy and all those things. Now, I lift weights at least up until my stroke. I was lifting weights and running. I was taking a walk to and run to around the track and lift uh, light weights at the Y. Why was I doing that? That is not why God struck me down, by the way, or <laughs> if he did or let it happen. Because I honestly wanted to be in better health so I could do the work. And that's the only reason. I already was happily married to a beautiful woman. I didn't need to impress anyone else. And uh, I didn't need to be big and strong. I knew that was not going to happen at age 78, you know. <laughs> I was. You see, whatever you do, it doesn't make any difference. I don't do everything perfectly this way. I don't mean to apply that, but far from it. But we should try. 
we brush our teeth, we want to eat a good diet, we want to lift weights or keep in shape, we want to make a good living within our means. Why? So we can be rich? No. So we can help others, we can help our family, and so we can give generously to the work of God. Many widow women, and worldwide, and I guess we have some, would literally raise gardens or take part-time jobs or sow and make money. And they would tell the old letters. I read them back in the 50s and 60s so they could send more money into Mr. Armstrong for the work of God. That was their whole motive in doing that. And uh, people, if that's their motive, God will bless them for that. But at any rate, whatever we do, we want to do it for, for God. And that should permeate every phase of our lives. Our love of God our love of the truth, our love of His work, our desire to share the truth with the whole world. So that's got to be the whole thing, to worship God in spirit and in truth. So we must really learn to do that. All right, what does Christ teach about Christianity, about restoring original Christianity? So many, many things, but one thing, brethren... And all I can do is give you a certain theme here today as we prepare for the fast and for the Passover, a scripture that we have used again and again, and I trust we'll keep on using it regularly. And everyone counseling someone for baptism should normally use this scripture. Back in Luke chapter 14, turn there with me, Luke 14. And let's begin here in verse 25. A great multitudes went with Christ, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate, and the Greek word is a comparative term, it means to love less, love less by comparison. You know, you're not to hate your father, you're to love your father, honor your father and mother, but to not love less his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. If you love your wife more than you love God, if you love your child more than you love God, if you love anyone or anything more than you love God, frankly, you're out of line. Because every good and wonderful and beautiful and right thing that you see in your husband or your wife or your child comes from where? Ultimately, it comes from God. God is the one who made them. God is the one who gave them their body, their personality, the capacity they have. That doesn't mean you don't love their, your wife or husband or child. Of course, you should love them. You're commanded to. But you're to love God more because God becomes real to you and you worship God. You adore God. You see the ultimate beauty, the ultimate kindness, the ultimate love, the ultimate wisdom, the ultimate power. And that great creator, as you look up into the scars at night. My wife was watching television a couple nights ago and got me to watch it with her for a while. I was reading there in the easy chair, but she was watching this thing, the National Geographic Channel, and uh, it had these massive uh, galaxies out there, entire galaxies. They've got this great big new telescope, and, and they're able to see not just new planets, but entire galaxies out there. And they indicate there may be as many galaxies, not just planets, but whole galaxies, as there are people on earth, and there may be dozens of times more galaxies than there are people on earth. In other words, as she was saying, God may not just be planning a, a planet for you and me, but an entire galaxy, an entire galaxy, if we really make it. It's hard for us to conceive 
what we will have as members of the God family, as members of the God family someday. Why do we go through these trials? Why does God let some of us be sick? Why does God let some of us die? Why does God let some of us suffer? Why does He try us and test us and test us and try us? Why does He allow me to have a stroke and to cripple around and so on? Well, partly because I'm 78, as I've said before, if I should die before I'm 100, uh, don't anyone fall away. Most of us will die before we're 100, and, you know, I want you to understand that. So it's not weird that I should have a few problems as I get older. But on the other hand, I think He's allowed me to have this also to learn and teaching me and working with me and I'm getting in more Bible study in the last several months, a more just constant, intense Bible study than before, which I probably needed before. It's not that I didn't study, you know that, but when I was preaching and teaching and writing, but I need even more and other things I'm learning, many other things. So God knows and He, he works with us. He's fashioning and molding every one of us. And whoever does not bear his cross, the trials we have, and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, you want to build a skyscraper, does not sit down first and count the cost. You'd better be sure that you have some really big banks and insurance companies behind you to, to, to raise the tens of millions of dollars to build this skyscraper before you start hiring construction companies or you'll go broke and... They'll put you in debtor's prison or something, you know. You've got to count the cost. Is it really something you need? Is, 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 or if you're going to rent it out, is it a good time to do it? Of course, now is not a good time. Is business expanding in your city so you could rent out all these spaces, so you could make money off of it? And do you have the expertise? And can you, or can you get a lieutenant who's really loyal, who knows how to... Uh, sub this stuff out so it can get done and so on. So you have to think of all those things and be sure you finish it. Otherwise, uh, you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it. You see, and all who see it begin to mock, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, he says, going to war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 He's just got an army of 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Now, why does Christ use that example? Well, frankly, we're going up against our human nature. We're going up against the world. We're going up against Satan the devil and put them all together. They're a lot stronger than we are. How are we going to make it? Only through the help of God. We've got to have faith and trust in God and cry out to God, seek God, yield to God and then ask God to let Christ do it in us otherwise we won't make it that's why you need to constantly reread uh, you know Galatians 2.20 where Paul said I'm crucified with Christ nevertheless I live yet not I but Christ lives in me Christ must live his life in you through the Holy Spirit or you will not be able to overcome yourself you will not be able to overcome the world you will not be able to overcome the power of Satan, the devil, and his demons who try to come at you, disorient you, disillusion you, get you mad at one another. He tries to divide and conquer even within the church. You've got to fight that battle. You can only win that battle through Christ within you. So that's it. 
He says, or else, while the other's a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is a very basic thing, a powerful section of what Christ taught. You've got in your mind and heart to forsake all that you have. Say, my mind is God's mind. My time is God's time. My family is God's family. My money is God's money. My property is God's money. My business is God's. You know what I mean. Everything like that, that doesn't mean you give up your business or give all your money to God. That means you consider it really belongs to God. And you are a steward. You are a steward of your life and your body for a little while. Your body belongs to Jesus Christ. Why do you take the body that belongs to Jesus Christ and cause it to be joined to a harlot? As Paul said, using that example back in 1 Corinthians 6, it's not your body. It's not your body. It's God's body. It belongs to Him. And you have no right to take it and use it in some foul way like that. And you have no right to take God's money and just waste it. You ought to use it in a right way for your family and maybe to help others and as best you can to give more as you're able to the church of God to show Him honor and to lay up treasure for all eternity. But it's His. Everything you have is His. My time is God's time. It doesn't belong to me. Now, does God want me to take enough time to exercise or to sleep or to get a change of pace? Yes. But I don't need to go wandering around. I remember wandering around back as a kid with uh, Ashby and Monty and Jack and all those guys, and they would stop by uh, after school or after football and play pinball machines and smoke. Some of you know those, they don't do that as much anymore with all the computers, but the pinball machines, your little ball bounce around you. Most of you have seen the, the light lights up. And I thought, even then, I guess God was working on me because I began to hear the program when I was just 14 years old, began to hear Mr. Armstrong. And I thought, well, why are they doing that? Of course, I was always more intense and I was wanting to exercise or do something worthwhile. They weren't doing anything worthwhile. They weren't getting any exercise. They were not learning anything. They really weren't communicating with each other very much. I guess they'd laugh and say, ah, whatever. And then they'd go on, the little ball would bounce around. And they were smoking. Only two guys out of our gang of 25 were not smokers. Me and, me and the one they called Judge, uh, Robert Warden. And he did become a judge. That was his nickname. And uh, so he was more serious. But the rest of them all smoked. So they were smoking and puffing away. Of course, I got an awful lot of secondhand smoke. I'm sure that didn't do me any good because I was always around those guys. But anyway, you see, you're not to do that kind of thing. My father told me several times, I don't know if my sister ever heard that, but he said I had to learn to kill time when he was in the army over in France. They just had to, you know, he was behind the lines and so on most of the time and just killing time. Well, you don't want to kill time. Of course, it wasn't his fault. He wasn't converted. He couldn't do very much. But you don't want to kill time. Time is absolutely valuable. And if you have extra time, you want to call others and encourage them or write people and encourage them or study the Bible and drink into the truth of God or pray to God on your... You don't want to just sit there and kill time. Is it wrong to look out the window for a few minutes once in a while? No, of course not. But you don't want to just waste hours at a pinball machine walking little balls and lights going around or watching some insane thing on television. Most of television is absolutely a, a, a mental disaster, as you know. It's designed for 12 to 14-year-old minds, not for adult minds. So you've got to think about it. Your life belongs to God.
So likewise, whosoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. You give your life and your entire being to your God. And if you learn to do that in faith, God will bless you and bless you and bless you, brethren. He really will. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how will it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, not, not good even for the manure pile. But men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, Jesus said. Notice now back in Revelation chapter 3 is a warning from our Savior Jesus Christ, who's speaking in the first person here in Revelation, and he's talking to the final era of the church. Revelation 3 and verse 14, and Christ is speaking here. Revelation 3, verse 14, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning, and it's wrongly translated, it should be the beginner or the originator of the creation of God. See, men mistranslated that. They gave the impression Christ was the first one created. The Jehovah Witnesses use this as one scripture to show Christ was the first one who was created, the beginning. You know, the correct translation, I've stacked this exhaustively. It means the originator of the creation of God. God created all things by Jesus Christ. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. God would rather, frankly, you be out there in the world freezing to death, and maybe you'd begin to wake up and want to come in where it's warm <laughs> with the truth of God, or that you'd be hot. You'd be on fire for God, have a passion for the work of God for the way of God, for the kingdom of God. So then, because you're lukewarm, you say, well, lukewarm is not bad. No, it's not terrible, but God doesn't want that. Can God let a whole bunch of lukewarm people into his family and make them members of the family of God and give them an entire galaxy when they have been nice folks, but they've kind of watered this down and watered that down, and he's not sure where they really stand? You see what I mean? God wants people who make a commitment from the very depths of their being and they don't mess around. Because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Brethren, please understand, lukewarm people don't have to be unusually evil. They're just there and nice people. And we have many in our church like that. But they're not on fire for God. And God would rather you'd be out learning some more lessons where you would come in and really repent as to be lukewarm and just sit there like a bump on a stump and not do very much. So we have to understand the mind of God in that. And this is God's mind out of His Word. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, here's what God wants and here's what we've all got to come to have, brethren, me and you and all of us. It's a warning that God gave my great, 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 great grandparents and yours, most of you, and all of us spiritually, whether we are partly Israelite or not. Spiritually, they are. He told the ancient Israelites here, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 25. He's talking to them as they were entering the promised land and about what was going to happen. He says, verse 25, when you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land, and that's what we have done, we think we have all these blessings in America because of democracy. We don't. We're going to realize we do not have them because of democracy. We have them because of Almighty God, the Creator. 
and you, you act corruptly and make carved images in the form of anything, he said, uh, and do evil in the sight of the eternal your God and provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it, but will utterly be destroyed and the eternal will scatter you among the peoples. That's what's going to happen to us as a nation soon. By you, know, you young people, it's a long way off. You know, you, you think five years is a long way off. Well, this will probably be more like seven to 17 years before this happens. It could happen in five or six years. Us old folks want us to happen in three to five years. And you young people want it to happen in 50 or 100 years. <laughs> we don't know. My guess is more like six to 12 years. But it says you, you will be scattered among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the eternal will drive you. And there you will serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor smell. But from there, notice, you will seek the eternal, your God. You've been really humbled finally and you're willing to go all out for a change. And you will find him. When will you find him? If... That's the biggest two-letter word in the English language. If, if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul, you say, God, help me. I mean it. I'm giving my life to you. No holes barred. And you follow through on that. If you seek him with all your heart and all your soul, when you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, He's talking about us right here, right now. When you turn to the eternal, your God, and obey his voice. So when you come back, that's what he says you will happen. Then God will forgive you if you come back with that attitude, of course. And brethren, as he calls us now, that's what we need to do. So we need to have that attitude and we need to cry out to God with all of our being. The fact most of us don't do that is one reason why we don't have the healings we ought to have, brethren. If we had that kind of attitude toward God, we would have a lot more healings and a lot more blessings. We would. Don't kid yourself. We would. That's one reason that many here in this church here and in our churches around the world, they don't even love each other like they should. They compete and put each other down. And there's kind of a wrong kind of competition and pushing and shoving. That should not be. I've told you how one happened years ago in one of the churches in the Mid-South, the coffee war. Several of the women uh, were going to get a new coffee pot. And they decided they would get together and chip in the next Sabbath to get a coffee pot. But one woman beat them to it and she simply brought, she paid for the coffee pot and brought it the next week to church and it made the other women furious. Now, why would it make them furious? They didn't have to pay any money. They thought, oh, she's going to get the credit. She's going to get the credit. You see the attitude? Maybe she didn't have a perfect attitude. Maybe she was showing off. I don't know, but it doesn't make any difference. She brought the coffee pot, and it sure showed the attitude of the other women. They were so upset they couldn't stand it. So we had the coffee pot war back there. And sometimes here, people are kind of pushing and shoving, and they don't uh, love each other, forgive each other, but get, let's get real, brethren, and you right here in this audience about these things. We've got to really learn to love each other, forgive each other, work together more, and get over it. Get over this pushing, shoving, competition, and so on. 
I hope you can all do that and all your brethren around the world because some of this still goes on. We have right in the midst of God's church some who are fornicators. Young people get into fornication. They sit right in our service and they don't grow horns. They just quietly fornicate. We have people that are lying. They lie regularly and sit right here in our church and we find them lying. We have people who steal God's tithe, and if we ever have to check up on brethren, we're going to hire someone or ordain someone. We don't check up on all the people all the time. But I've been astonished through the years sometimes, thinking, well, here's a man ready for some job, and, and he, 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 doesn't, he doesn't even begin to pay a tenth of his money and give it to God. It's not going to change my salary, one or two or five here or there. That's not the point. He is lying, in a sense, living a lie, pretending to be one of us, and he's stealing God's tithe. Many other people water things down. They quietly watch, you know, a movie or bad stuff on television on the Sabbath day, on God's Sabbath day. They do other things, watering down, watering down, watering down. Don't do that. Examine yourself. How should you seek God? Well, it's not some mystery. But just going over it here quickly, please learn to do this. You need to really study. If you're going to really seek God, the best way in the New Testament church, which God has given us now, this Bible they didn't used to have, God says you're to study the Bible and prove all things. And we've given whole sermons on that, so I don't have time for a sermon. But I mean to really start reading this book more than you have ever done before, most of you, and drinking of it and feed on Christ. Then God becomes real to you if you do that. And then meditate as you study and after you study. Think over, what does this mean? How can I really apply this in my life? Meditate carefully. Then pray. Learn to pray to God on your knees with all your heart. And as Mr. Armstrong said a number of times, he said, I think one of the greatest problems of our brethren in the church in their prayer life is they don't put their hearts in their prayers. You know, I grew up saying, now I'll lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep. When I was saying, my, my dad mother helped me say my bedtime prayers. And that was nice. That's all they knew. But I just rattled it off. No, you don't pray like that. You're coming before the Creator who gives you life and breath. Say, Father in heaven, help me. Clean me up and scrub me out. Guide me. Guide my life. Intervene powerfully. Send Jesus back to this earth. Please, Father, this earth doesn't even know we exist. Please help us to have an impact on this world. Help us to make our lives count for something while we're here. And cry out to God. Give me your Holy Spirit. Give these other people your Holy Spirit. Help us to honor you as the church of the living God at the end of the age. Cry out to God as you pray with all your being. And then fast. We're going to have a fast beginning next Friday evening. For those of you who didn't hear about it, we've called a fast on the Sabbath, sunset to sunset next Friday. And during that fast, you shouldn't eat bread or drink water, and you should try to pray to God. You should try to study extra, meditate extra, and just draw close to God in a powerful way during that fast. Think about this sermon. Think about these things while you're fasting. And then next, you need to walk with God and, of course, the whole Bible tells you how to walk with God, but I've been telling you some about it during this sermon, to try to let Christ take control of every part of your life. And don't just use the WWJD uh, thing. The kids were using that. I've added a word to that. 
what would Jesus Christ really do? I've added the word really. Look in the Bible, study the Bible, pray, meditate, and then try with all your heart asking God for extra help to try to do what you can see Jesus would really do. You're upset at someone, what would Jesus really do? You don't like someone, what would Jesus really do? You, you know, have a tendency to lust or to hate, what would Jesus really do? Get over it and learn to do what Jesus would really do with the help of God's Spirit. Walk with God in every phase of your life by constant Bible study, meditation, prayer, and fasting. Mr. Armstrong told us a number of times, he did brag, or I don't remember ever saying this in public, but he did pray sometimes dozens of times a day. And I find I do better when I do that. I don't mean on my knees. I try to pray two or three times a day on my knees. But by just quickly before lunch or before a meeting or before just quickly praying to God in your mind and say, God, be with us, guide us, lead us, help us. All through the day, talking to God, walking with God, having your hand in God's hand, so to speak. So that's what you want to do, brethren. That's what God wants us all to do. Turn back now to Jeremiah, brethren. Jeremiah 29. And this is kind of a, an addition to what we already saw here. This is the mind of God as he, what he tells about when he brings back Judah or is going to bring back Judah from their captivity. And Jeremiah was inspired to write in God's word, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. Thus says the eternal, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, they had gone into captivity and for 70 years were going into captivity for at least three and a half years of the great tribulation, that is, our people. If you are watching and praying and doing what I say, you don't have to be in that captivity. You know that. But I'm giving you a warning. After 70 years, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the eternal thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. That's so important to God. He repeats that phrase several times in the Bible. You know, there's this beautiful oratorial in the Elijah. If with all your heart you seek me, you shall surely find me. My wife and I have a series of songs on us, a big tape by Roger Bryant, who used to be our greatest tenor at Big Sandy and the best, I guess, in the church ever. Just beautiful songs. That's one of the best songs. If with all your heart you seek me, he said, and find me, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, and I will bring you back from your captivity I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the ever-living one, and I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. God will bring us back, and God will bring us back individually from trials and tests and all kinds of things if we turn to Him and all of us begin to seek Him in the way I've described, with all our hearts. Please learn to do that, brethren. That's so important in the entirety of your life. And as we approach the Passover, as we approach this coming fast, learn to seek God, the true God of the Bible, the Creator, the great God of the universe, 
with all your heart.